Father, we thank you that you never sleep and that you never slumber. We thank you that you never need to sleep. We thank you that the eye of the Lord is in every place. We pray for those uh, men that are representing our country and uh, fighting for us in Iraq tonight. There are guys that could be right now under fire, going house to house, uh, down streets, around corners, <clears throat> and they're scared, but they're still doing it. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, keep your hand of protection on them. We pray that uh, you would give them favor. We pray for perhaps some of those young men who have never uh, uh, had an interest in you that suddenly now, because life is real and life is precious, uh, their minds uh, turn to the things of, uh, of eternity. We, we pray for them. We, we pray for those who know you, that they would grow in grace and that your comfort would be around them and the assurance of your presence would be with them. And for those who don't, Lord, that they would uh, call to you. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that uh, tonight here we gather. Uh, we're getting together to study the Bible. We do this all the time. Um, we're not worried about someone coming in here and arresting us or um, shooting up the place. But in a lot of places in the world, that's what happens. And it's happening with greater and greater frequency. So we thank you for freedom. We thank you for liberty. We thank you for those who are putting their lives on the line. We pray for our president, that you'd give him great wisdom. We pray that you would, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would give him the mind of Christ. Uh, we would pray for Condoleezza Rice as she goes before this committee tomorrow. And there's, there's a lot going on around that, Lord. Um, but there is a woman that loves you and loves your word. And you've put her in a very, very high position. And there's going to be, uh, quite frankly, the eyes of the world on her tomorrow. So we pray for her as we would want people to pray for us if we were going into that situation. Give her a, a sense of calm and, and uh, serenity, a sense of your presence. Uh, thank you for her integrity. Uh, may, may she have... Uh, May, may she have great poise under pressure because you're with her. Lord, we're living in interesting days. We're living in days where there is uh, an acceleration of evil and an acceleration of sin uh, that sometimes takes our breath away and staggers us. In, in a climate like that, there is nothing that is more appropriate than to study your character and who you are. Uh, that gives us uh, a foundation. It anchors us. It uh, keeps us from drifting. It gives us hope when we tend to lose hope because of what we see uh, happening around us that, that, quite frankly, can bring despair into our hearts. We focus on you tonight. We focus on your greatness, on your character on the fact that you have an eternal plan for the ages that will never be frustrated. We thank you that you are not frustrated. We thank you that you are not taken back uh, 
We thank you, Lord, that, uh, uh, that nothing can stop your hand. Nothing can thwart your plan. So tonight, Lord, as we look at who you are, draw us closer to you. We're not interested, Lord, in just obtaining uh, knowledge to get facts. We're interested in this making a difference in our lives and in our hearts and in our affection and our warmth towards you. So would you do that for us? Lord, give us what we need. We don't even know what we need, but we ask you to give it to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I, I read a very brief and concise testimony recently of a man uh, that was looking back over his life and the events that led him to Christ. He says, at the age of 23, I was a spiritual derelict. Worse than that, I was thoroughly satisfied with my secular lifestyle as a ballroom dance instructor at the Arthur Murray Studio in Tampa, Florida. I was a college dropout, but making good money in a job that I immensely enjoyed. I was single, popular, and pretty well unhampered by moral restraints. Uh, By the way, this is the testimony of uh, D. James Kennedy, pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Uh, at this age, I could, I could not recall ever hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was before my clock radio in my rented apartment on South Boulevard in Tampa threw me a curve one morning. I had come in from an all-night dance party and thought I had set the appliance to wake me at the proper time with appropriate music for a soothing return to consciousness. But what I heard that Sunday afternoon was the thundering voice of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church. I jumped out of bed to switch the dial, but was stopped almost in mid-flight by a question I could not brush aside. In In the penetrating stentorian tones for which he was famous, this great preacher and broadcast evangelist asked, suppose that you were to die today and stand before God and he were to ask you, What right do you have to enter my heaven? What would you say? I was completely dumbfounded. I had never even thought of such a thing as that. And my nonchalance suddenly evaporated into thin air. I sat on the edge of my bed as though transfixed, groping for an answer to this simple question. I had had enough common sense to realize that even though I had no background in the Bible, This was the most important question that had ever entered my mind. In God's mercy, he led me to a corner newsstand. And there I asked the proprietor, do you have any religious books? He reached over and gave me Fulton Orsler's book, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And that was my introduction to Christ. And that was my introduction to God. James Kennedy, an Arthur Murray dance instructor, <laughs> college dropout. Isn't that great? Uh, he didn't know about God. Now he does because God sought him out. Uh, the most important thing about us, and we said this last week, 
The most important thing about you and the most important thing about me is what we believe to be true about God. If you were to write a definition of God, what would you say? What would you cover? What would you emphasize? What do you think God is like? Uh, everybody has an opinion about what God is like. Everybody. Um, I was speaking in the San Francisco Bay Area this weekend. And on the plane home from San Francisco, the woman next to me began to open up and she told me why she had been in San Francisco. There was a family crisis and she had a brother who was dying and I thought to myself I wonder if he's dying of AIDS because it's San Francisco and that's so prevalent uh, she didn't say that but a half hour later she did and mentioned as she continued to talk about what a traumatic week it was not only because of her brother's condition that he's dying but uh, because her family as she put it is so screwed up and she began to tell me about her mother and about her sister and about herself. And they all believe different things about God. And, uh, and, and she told me about her mother and what her mother believed. And she told me about her sister who didn't believe there was a God at all. And she said, and I'm a lapsed Roman Catholic, but I have this brother who is the real problem. I said, really? She said, yes. He's a fundamentalist. I said, no, kid. <laughs> and he was the real problem during the week. I said, is that right? And I just let her talk, and I just listened to her. And then we began to talk about God. And we began to talk just very, I, I just let it, I just let her go. And then we began to discuss different things and about Christianity and uh, if the Bible can be trusted. And, um, and I mentioned to her, you know, the, the real crux, we're coming up on Easter next week, the real crux of the whole thing is if Jesus rose from the dead. If you can, uh, if, if that can be disproved, the whole thing is just, it's foolishness. But, but if he did, if he did, then, you see, that can't be ignored. Very interesting plane ride. Her mother has a view of God. Her sister has a view of God. She's got a brother who has a view of God. She's got a brother dying of AIDS who has a view of God, and she had a view of God. Several hundred years ago, some um, men who loved God got together, and in, in order to give a clear statement in a fairly concise form of what they believe, not only about God and the Bible, they wrote something in, a, um, in the town right next to London called Westminster, and they titled this the Westminster Confession of Faith. Here is what those men said about God. Compare this to what you would write about God if you were going to define him. Excuse me, that was the pizza I had. <laughs> there is but one only living and true God 
who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts. He's immutable. He's immense. Immutable means he doesn't change. He's immense. He's eternal. He's incomprehensible. He's almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. He's most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. That's not bad. I don't think uh, this has been topped by any other document just written by frail men. It's a very good description. Pulling in the whole counsel of God, uh, pulling in the whole teaching of God, of God about, about who God is. Uh, there is great confusion about who God is. There is great confusion about the attributes of God. There is great confusion about uh, the traits of God. If I were to ask you, uh, tell me about your wife. What would be the first trait that would come to your mind about your wife? What is the single most outstanding trait? She's got a bunch of traits. There are different aspects to her personality. She's a multifaceted woman. She's a multifaceted individual. But, but in your mind, what is the one single trait that stands out about her? For most people, when, when they think about God, the trait that comes to mind, the, the trait that's number one is the love of God. The scripture says that God is love. The scripture talks about the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, there is a facet of God that is the love of God. There is no question about that. But biblically, the primary characteristic of God is not the love of God, the primary characteristic of God is his holiness. And this is where we're going to begin. Last week was an introduction to the whole study. Tonight, we focus on the holiness of God. Because that is God's primary trait. And to understand the other attributes of God and the other aspects, see, you can't understand 
the love of God without, underst- without taking it through the grid of the holiness of God. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6? Because in Isaiah chapter 6, we get a, a, a classic, classic statement on the primary <coughs> attribute of God. Isaiah, the great prophet. Isaiah the prophet who, who never wa- wavered in declaring God's truth uh, to the kings, to many of the kings that we studied in our last series. Uh, here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death. This is very, it's very interesting he would say that because he's going to pinpoint the time. He's going to pinpoint the date that something happened to him. It was in a particular year. It was the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. These are remarkable creatures. You'll note that as we go through the text. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, tolerant, tolerant, tolerant is the Lord God Almighty. That's what most people in our culture would say. Or it's what they would want to say about God. Tolerant, because we worship tolerance. There is no virtue higher in American culture today than tolerance. Tolerance basically means I can do anything that I want, and not only will you not object, you will approve. That's what tolerance means today. G.K. Chesterton once said, tolerance is the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. Now that rings true. The seraphim called out one to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Why was it filling with smoke? Because of the holiness of God. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. This is a remarkable thing that happened to Isaiah. Uh, He was never the same after this encounter with with the living God. The primary attribute of God is not the love of God. The primary attribute of God is not the wisdom of God. The primary attribute of God is not the grace of God. Uh, The primary attribute of God is not uh, the omniscience of God or the omnipotence of God, meaning his power, omnipotence, meaning... uh, his omniscience that he knows all things. 
the primary attribute of God is his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What is holiness? I want to read to you a definition of the holiness of God. I'd tell you who wrote it, but I don't know who wrote it. I had it in one of my files, and when I was going through it, I came across it. Don't have a, I give the guy credit. I don't know who wrote it. Listen to this. Holiness, on the one hand, implies entire freedom from moral evil. And on the other, absolute moral perfection. Freedom from impurity is the primary idea of the word holiness. To be holy is to be clean. Infinite purity, even more than infinite knowledge or infinite power, is to be reverenced. It is because of God's holiness and purity that he is a consuming fire. So the holiness of God is his absolute moral purity. He is clean. Uh, The scripture says the law of the Lord is clean. Uh, The word of God is pure. Uh, uh, We are not pure. We, we are polluted. Uh, we have a problem. We have a dirt problem. We have a sin problem. We have a uh, toxicity problem that lives within us. Uh, it, it's called sin. Uh, when, when you begin to, uh, and this is what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah is suddenly in the presence of God, and when a human being is in the presence of God, there is an emotional reaction and there is a spiritual reaction uh, to being in the presence of God. And, and what, is, what is the immediate um, uh, emotion, what is the immediate feeling of being in the presence of God? It's that he was unclean. Because you see, God is clean. God is pure. God is, there is moral, absolute moral perfection in God. God is not like us. Not at all like us. Um, Thomas Watson, you guys have been coming to the study for a while. You know he's one of my favorites. Uh, he wrote a book called The Mischief of Sin. Uh, this book was lost for a couple of hundred years, and then somebody found it and reproduced it. It's, um, uh, this guy hit sin from angles I've never, never considered or thought about. But in talking about sin, in, in, contrast, in contrast to the holy God, the God of absolute moral perfection, uh, then you have us. Here's a paragraph from, uh, from Watson. He says, men invent new sin. Romans 1.30 says that we are inventors of evil things. Some invent new errors. Some invent new snares. This age exceeds former ages in sinning. Did you catch that? He wrote this in about 1663. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones, in 1959, got up at Westminster Chapel and proclaimed out of the pulpit of that great church 
He said this, we are living in days of exceptional evil. And he was grieved. We're living in days of exceptional evil, he declared in 1959. Most of us would cut off our right arm to go back to 1959. Watson couldn't imagine where we are today. Lloyd-Jones couldn't imagine where we are today. I, I told you a few weeks ago what Winston Churchill said in Parliament when they were considering uh, uh, financially supporting and giving aid to the Bolsheviks in Russia who were murdering and raping and rampaging and, and for political reasons they were thinking about throwing their support. Churchill was astonished. He, he, he was rarely speechless. He, he was almost speechless, but he got up and he said, you might as well legalize sodomy. Well, we have. Just, just give, us, give us 90 years, Winston, and we'll get along to it. Why? Because we're always inventing new sin. He says, as with trades, there may be old trades, but there are some new tradesmen now who have grown more dexterous and cunning in their trade than they were in former times. So it is with sin. Sin is an old trade, but there are persons now alive who are more skilled in the trade and have grown more expert in sin than those who are dead and gone. In former times, sinners were bunglers at sin compared to where we are now. They are cunning at self-damnation. Jeremiah 4.22 says they are wise to do evil. He says the devil's mint is going every day and sin is minted faster than money. That's a great statement. Why, why is it that new sin is created in each generation? Well, it's because of what's in our hearts. We, we are in absolute contrast and distinction um, to who God is. I want to work through this passage because... In what happened to Isaiah, there were four things that he sees. Four things that he points out. Four things that, that uh, had a, uh, uh, a life-changing, long-term impact on, on how he lived his life from this moment on. Um, number one, he sees the Lord he sees the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Uh, you, you want to see something really interesting? Turn over to John 12, verse 41. John 12, 41 tells us really who it was that, that he saw. John 13, 40 quotes Isaiah he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. If you read the context, he's speaking of Jesus. He saw the Lord, high and mighty, lifted up. Um, in Acts chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus is called the holy and righteous one. Jesus was absolutely holy. Jesus was absolutely righteous. Jesus went to the cross. 
He who knew no sin became sin for us. Uh, Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus was born of a virgin. Uh, Jesus did not have a sin nature. Jesus did not have a human father. Uh, There's another remarkable thing about Jesus Christ. That, uh, you know, the world system is always attacking what the Scripture says about Jesus. Uh, This lady I was talking to on the plane, as we were talking and having this long discussion, one of the things she told me was that one of her favorite movies is The Last Temptation of Christ because it shows Christ in all of his humanity. Married to Mary Magdalene and having an illegitimate child with, uh, or, or, or a child with Mary Magdalene, uh, which is the message of the Da Vinci Code, this best-selling book. It's just the same old stuff. Same old stuff being said time and time again, contrary to what the Scripture teaches. Uh, Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw the Lord who is holy and righteous and pure. Secondly, he sees the seraphim. The, the seraphim are amazing creatures. The thing about God, when you observe the creation, God never creates something without giving it the necessary equipment to function and achieve its purpose. So God created polar bears. Uh, Polar bears don't live in uh, South Florida. Polar bears live way up north. Polar bears live where there's ice and there's snow. Uh, Polar bears uh, live where there are treacherous conditions uh, where most bears would lose their footing, but polar bears don't lose their footing because of the, the web-like treads that are on the bottom of their uh, feet on their soles that, that God provided for them because God never creates something without giving it the necessary equipment for which it was created. That's true of a polar bear. It's true for anything. Uh, fish have gills. It's necessary for fish to have gills, for fish to be what God has designed fish to be. Same thing is true of the seraphim. The seraphim, the function of seraphim is to declare eternally the holiness of God. That's all they do. They declare the holiness of God. They declare the primary virtue of who God is. If there's anything that we need to hear in 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 uh, this day, as believers, we need to hear of the holiness of God because, once again, our culture is continuing to sink. Our our culture is continuing to lower the bar. And what tends to happen, because it's so strong and because it's so prevalent, we can be affected and we can be influenced. So we have to be reminded constantly of who it is that we serve and who our God is. What's his primary characteristic? Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Um, We can develop a flippancy about God. We can develop, um, we get more comfortable with God when we make him real familiar. So the Doobie Brothers, of all people, did a song called 
Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus, as they smoke their dope, is just all right with me. Oh, yeah. That's the whole song. Um, well, see, that's the wrong, that's really the wrong. See, the question is, are you all right with Jesus? Not is Jesus all right with you. See, see the Jesus that, in other words, what they're saying is, hey, Jesus is cool. Jesus, Jesus is hip. Jesus is, Je they don't know who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus is holy. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is God. Uh, you know, we have to be careful of, even in our prayers, of not getting too familiar. We're sons and we have access into the Holy of Holies, but when we address God, um, we need to be aware of who it is we're speaking to. We, we need to be aware of his greatness and his majesty and He's, he's not like us. He's our father. These seraphim declare eternally the holiness of God. Let's check these guys out because he sees them. They've got six wings. What are the six wings about? Well, it, it tells us that with two wings they fly. Secondly, with two wings they cover their feet. Now, what is this all about? Why would they cover their feet? Well, 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light. Unapproachable light. In 1 Samuel 6, 19, 50,000 people were killed at one time for approaching the Ark of the Covenant and attempting to look into it. They were killed because they attempted to approach and look into the glory of God. But God dwells in unapproachable light. He cannot be approached. You see, that's pretty strict. That's pretty stern. Yes, it is because of who he is. He is see, God is, to be, uh, God is to be feared. You realize that 14 times in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of life. Fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord. God is not like us. When C.S. Lewis uh, uh, did his uh, uh, books, his children's books, Narnia. Uh, Aslan, who represents Christ, Aslan is a lion. He's a lion. Uh, have you ever been around a male lion? Uh, they are to be feared. I, I, when, uh, when we lived in the Bay Area years and years ago, and uh, Rachel was just a little baby, we went up to the San Francisco Zoo, and... We were spending the day up there, and as we were, you know, she, she was tired, was ready, she was ready to go. It was time for her nap. We're heading out to the parking lot. We just went by the lion's house. That's what they call it. We're probably 100 yards away from the lion's house. And then all of a sudden, I heard this roar. I didn't hear one roar. I heard maybe eight or nine or ten roars at the same time. And... Um, I just about lost control of my bodily functions, to, to be real honest with you. The resonance, the uh, amplification, to hear a male, 
they were gonna, it was time to feed the lions. And the guy came in there with the meat, with the, with the slabs of meat. And to hear those lions roar, let me tell you something. That is something to be feared. Uh, God is a good God. God is a gracious God, but he is a God to be feared. Why do they have uh, wings? Why, why, uh, what's this deal with their wings? Why do they cover their feet? 2 Samuel 6 talks about Uzzah. When they were bringing the ark back after the Philistines had captured the ark, you probably remember the story. As they were taking the ark back to Israel, the ark apparently got unsteady, looked like it might slip off its poles, and Uzzah reached out and touched the ark to steady it, and what happened to Uzzah? He was killed. God killed him. That's hardball. Um, we have trouble with that. We have real difficulty with that. You know why we do? Because we, we have come to always expect God to be merciful. Always. And God usually is. In that case, God was not merciful. But in that case, God was not unjust, was he? Because they had been told, you are not to touch the ark. They were clearly told. They knew the prohibition. He touched it, and God instituted immediate and swift justice. God dwells in unapproachable, and there was a great fear in the people. First Timothy 5, isn't it 22? First Timothy 5, 19? Maybe it's 22. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses and then rebuke him in the presence of all that the rest may be fearful of sin. There are times when we need to be made fearful. There are times when we, there, there was a healthy kind of fear. When, when, a, when an unfortunate occurrence happens in a church and a pastor or a church leader is unrepentant and the process biblically is followed through and the person is unrepentant, uh, sometimes it becomes necessary to publicly um, expose the individual and, and the reprimand of Matthew 18. One of the reasons for that, the scripture says, is that the rest may be fearful of sin. See, when someone is publicly um, disciplined, when their sin is publicly pointed out because of a refusal to repent and because of a hardened heart, it puts fear in the rest of us. Their feet were covered so that they could not approach because God dwells in unapproachable light. Thirdly, they had two wings that covered their faces. Um, in Exodus 33, 23, Moses saw the glory of God. But, but Moses could only see, and this is what's called an anthropomorphism. There, there are times in Scripture when a human trait is assigned to God. Uh, Moses wanted to see the glory of God, but God would pass by and he could only see the backside. For instance, you've heard the term the eye of the Lord. God the Father doesn't have an eye because he doesn't have a body. He's spirit. The arm of the Lord, God the Father doesn't have an arm. That's an anthropomorphism. Anthropos meaning man, morphe meaning form. 
Sometimes God is spoken of with human form so that we can identify with the figure of speech. Um, These seraphim who declare the holiness of God are given certain equipment for the function that they were created for so that they can live and not be destroyed as they declare the holiness of God. So he sees the Lord, he sees the seraphim. Thirdly, this gets real interesting, he sees himself. Um, And here is the proper response to being in the presence of Almighty God. Um, He says, I am ruined. I am unruined. I, I uh, I am unclean. Now the reason he's saying that is because of the overwhelming sense and the overwhelming presence, guys, of the, of the holiness of Almighty God. Um, God is not like us. Uh, God is, is different than we are. God is different from our culture. And interestingly enough, not only does he refer to himself, but he refers to his nation. Not only is he unclean, but his nation is unclean. Uh, Notice what he says. He said, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. We're an unclean people, guys. In the Ten Commandments, God says you're not to have any graven images. God says you're not to take my name in vain. Why? Because God's name is holy. I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago written by an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. And in his article, at a certain point, I came to the word God, and it was spelled G blank D. Orthodox Jews will not use the name of God because they don't want to blaspheme the name of God because that's how holy God's name is. Uh, Years ago, I had uh, my boys with me and we were going somewhere and we pulled into 7-Eleven just to get it. We were going to get a Coke and we were driving somewhere to get a Diet Coke and uh, just wanted to run in and run out. You know, those are called convenience stores. And they used to be convenient. But they're not anymore. Some of you guys have heard me tell this story. Because I just wanted to get the Diet Coke and get out of there. Well, it took us quite a while to get out of there. Because there were probably four or five guys lined up in front of me. And, uh, and they were all taking a real long time. Because what they were doing was they were all buying lottery tickets. You know, they have those deals on the wheels and they spin them and you know, well, you know, I'll take one of these, you know. And, I mean, it's taking forever. And finally, finally, I, you know, we got up there, and I said, hey, just, just, just the Diet Cokes. And the lady said, hey, the lottery's up to $8 million. I said, great, I'll just take the Cokes. And she said, you don't want to win $8 million? And I said, no, I just need the Diet Cokes, thanks. She said, I can't believe you don't want $8 million. I thought, oh, gosh, here we go. And I thought, well, and I said, no, you know, I, I, no, that's fine. I, I, don't, I don't. She said, that's unbelievable. Everybody else wants the $8 million jackpot. jackpot. And I, I said, well, you know, I'd just rather trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you think that's the best way to go? And I'll tell you something. All of a sudden, it got real quiet. 
<laughs> in 7-Eleven. Because somebody had said Jesus Christ respectfully. A guy said Jesus Christ all the time in there. All the time. All the time they say. How many times an hour would you hear Jesus Christ? But when someone says Jesus Christ and means it, it got real quiet in there. The lights started flickering. <laughs> the refrigerators turned off. Hey, it got real interesting. I mean, guys, guys were staring. You see? She, and she didn't ask me anymore. She just gave me my change and we got in the car. See? Isn't interesting? When, when someone says it with reverence and with awe and they mean it, it, the atmosphere changes. Because you see, the atmosphere normally is unclean when it comes to who God is and it comes to his nature and it comes to his character and it comes, it comes to his name. Um, that's why Isaiah said, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. Um, mine eyes have seen the Lord. I am among a people of unclean lips. Uh, he, and you know what he did? He nailed it. He nailed his condition. His condition was one of sin. The condition, hey, hey listen, he's the prophet. He's the guy that's declaring, he's the guy that's declaring the word of the Lord. He's, he's the guy that's up front. He's the guy that graduated from seminary. He's the guy that knows the Greek and Hebrew. And what's he saying about himself? I'm unclean. I'm a sinner. That's what he's saying about himself. And I live among a sinful people. Uh, that's where we begin. That's where we start. Uh, sin has killed us. Sin has destroyed us. Sin has polluted us. Sin has touched every part of our being. There, there is a theological concept called total depravity. And, and uh, what that simply means is, is that we're not as bad as we could be, but total depravity means that depravity, that sin, has touched every single area of our existence and our being. There is not an area of your being that has not been touched and polluted and toxified by sin. We're totally depraved. We're totally unclean. Um, so then what happens? He's seen the Lord. He's seen the seraphim. He sees himself. And now, interestingly enough, he sees the coal. Now, what's the coal about? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, verse 6, with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my lips. And said, behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Uh, this is a picture. The, the, the only thing that can take away sin and bring forgiveness is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a picture. This is a picture of what Christ was going to do when he came. Uh, interestingly enough, in, in Leviticus 6, uh, have you ever decided that you're going to try and read through the Bible in a year? And you get all pumped up for it? And you say, I'm going to read a chapter a day. And you get this little calendar. All right, I'm going to read it all the way through. I'm going to start at Genesis 1. I'm going all the way to Revelation 22. 
and you're doing great. Gen- you know, you're getting up early, half hour early every morning, and you start off Genesis 1. All right, this is great. You know, you got your Wheaties, you got your coffee, you got Genesis 1. And the next day you're Genesis 2 and 3, and you're getting into 12 and Abraham and the covenant. You know, you're, you're cruising, you know, Isaac, Jacob, you're getting into Joseph. Then you get into Exodus. Oh, this is unbelievable stuff, Moses and the whole thing. Genesis, Exodus, and then you turn to Leviticus chapter 1. And then you read 2. And then you read Leviticus 3. And it's all you can do to stay awake. Why is that? Well, it's because you're not a Levitical priest. If you were a Levitical priest, you would have no trouble reading Leviticus with complete attention and interest. Do you know why? Because when it was your turn to offer incense, sacrifice, whatever, to the Lord, you wanted to do it and live. (laughs) That was a goal of your life. It was important to your wife. So Leviticus was very, very important. See, it's got all these, it tells them exactly how to do it, how to wash, what to do with the fat, what to do with the entrails, what to do with the incense, what to do with the scapegoat, what to do, all these different intricate details, which tend to bore us to tears because we're not Levitical priests. It didn't bore them to tears. See, now we have the cross. Jesus went to the cross, and Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for my sin and for your sin. Uh, Jesus paid for our sin. There, we, we don't, uh, on Easter, when, when we gather here this Sunday, we're not going to, we're not going to have a sheep, and we're not going to cut its throat, and we're not going to uh, spill the blood of that sheep because Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. By his life, by his holiness, he paid the price for your sin. He paid the price for my sin. He who was holy died for those of us who were unclean. That's the whole point of the cross. Would you turn with me to, uh, uh, to uh, Psalm 24? In, in Psalm 24, um, there's a phrase that is also used in, uh, in, in Psalm 15. But it talks about standing before the Lord. Look at verse 3. Who may ascend until, into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his, note this, holy place? He who has clean hands, and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. All right? Now, uh, those of you who have not sworn deceitfully, stand up. Those who have not ever uh, lied to your wife, stand up. Uh, Those who have clean hands, and those who have pure hearts. See, we're out of luck. How in the world can we ever ascend into the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? We can't do it apart 
from Jesus Christ who transfers his righteousness and his holiness to us. Uh, that's what Christ has done. He has made us able, and if you read Hebrews, in fact, flip over to Hebrews. This is quite remarkable. Because of what Jesus has done, those of us who are unclean. You know, in the Old Testament, the, um, the high priest could only enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. That was it. He couldn't do it every week. He couldn't do it every Sabbath. Uh, he could do it one time. One man could enter into the presence of God just, um, just one time a year. Uh, if, if you take a look at um, Hebrews 9, verse 11. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves. Have you guys ever stopped to think about on those special feast days in Israel when all the people would gather and they'd make sacrifices, uh, when they dedicated the temple, the sacrifices they made? Have you ever thought of how much blood was spilled have you ever thought about the drainage system they had to have in that temple? The, the, the thousands of gallons of blood that was spilled so that sin could be forgiven. It says 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Um, go over to 10. Verse, uh, verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Um, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Did you catch that? He, having offered... One sacrifice for sins for all time. That was him. Sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. What God has done is that we, the, the holiness of Christ has been transferred to us by the work which he did on the cross. Um, so, as a result of what Christ has done, Christ has made us holy. You, you know the term saint? You see it in the scriptures? To the saints who are at Colossae, to the saints who are at Ephesus. You know what the word saint means? It means holy one. Holy one. See, we'd get uncomfortable if someone called us a saint. Well, I'm not a saint. Well, how would you feel if they called you holy one? Hey, don't call me holy. Well, that's, but see... See, that's what he has made us. That we are covered by his blood, therefore we are holy ones because he's transferred it into our account. So as a result of what Christ has done, we're people who are unclean. In contrast to the holiness of God, we're unclean, we're sinners. Now follow me here. Because of what Christ has done, you know what Peter says to us today? You see, this is all very interesting, Steve. What does it mean in my life, all right? 1 Peter 1, verse 14 says, you shall be holy, God says, 
for I am holy. See, because of what Christ has done for us, I am to live a new way. Paul says in Ephesians, let him who steals, steal no longer. Uh, Lay aside falsehood. Because of what Christ has done in your life, quit being a liar. Start telling the truth. You walk into 7-Eleven and you steal lunch, don't steal lunch anymore. Pay for your lunch. Ephesians 4.30 says, and do not grieve the loving spirit. That's not what he's called. Do, Do not grieve who? The Holy Spirit. Can I ask you guys something? What is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? Disobedience. Sin. What is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? Sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Disobedience grieves the Holy Spirit. What kind of spirit is he? He's a, he's a Holy Spirit. See, he lives within us. And what he desires is for us to grow in holiness. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 14 says, Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue it. Some of you guys remember uh, uh, playing football, and you remember those drills that you would do from time to time. My all-time favorite drill was the one where the coach would get you running, and you're just running. Everybody just stand. You're running in place, and he's holding this ball. You're running. He's got that ball, and then he does this. And what do you do? Everybody pursues. See, good defenses pursue. Good defenses swarm the ball. So everybody, <laughs> that coach is standing there. He's 60 pounds overweight. He couldn't do that for 30 seconds. But that's why he's a coach. He's holding that ball. Everybody's running in place. He's watching. He's holding that ball, and he goes, and everybody, do that for five six seven eight minutes he's teaching the concept concept of pursuit pursuit what is it that we are to do as believers Uh, we're to pursue because of what christ has done in my life we are to pursue holiness now how, how do i pursue holiness how do i do that um we'll go to psalm 119 Hey, some real practical things here on pursuing. I mean, this also, okay, good, holiness. We're all for it. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. What does it mean to pursue holiness? Uh, psalm 119, longest psalm in the scriptures, tells us about what it is that the word of God does for us. Um, Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? Um, There is, uh, in our culture today, there's nothing more humiliating or embarrassing for a guy in college to be called a virgin. If you want to humiliate a guy in front of his buddies, in front of his friends, just say he's a virgin. Well, they'll ride him forever. They, 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 they won't let that go away. He's a virgin. 
Um, see, that's, that's where we are in this culture. I saw a uh, uh, deal on TV the other night on Wilt Chamberlain. And one of the things about Chamberlain, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal athlete. But he wrote, he wrote his biography, and in his biography, he claimed to have slept with 20,000 women. And interestingly enough, they were interviewing some of his friends, and, uh, and they said he was absolutely shocked at the reaction he got to that, that, that people scorned him. And, and he actually went to a friend, he says, how, how, do, I, how do I live this down? See, he, he gloried in, in what was really reprehensible. Now, today, he'd probably get a lot more credit than, than he did back then when he released the book. Uh, God upholds purity for young men. The Scripture says here in Psalm 119, uh, how, can a young way, how can a young man keep his way pure? Now, let me ask you something. What is holiness again? What did we say it was? It's moral what? Purity. How can a young man keep his way holy? How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. So you know what that tells me? If you're going to pursue holiness, you've got to be pursuing the word of God and putting the word of God in your heart. Romans 12.1 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. This is all an issue of the mind. So, so if I'm going to pursue holiness, I have got to reprogram everything I've been sticking into my mind. I have got to start protecting my mind and putting the word of God into my mind. It's a process it, it's going to take time to grow. I'm not going to get it overnight, but I've got to pursue it. I've got to go after it. You say, what kind of man do you want to be? Uh, no, verse 11. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee. That's what it means to pursue holiness. There's a flip side to it. To pers- Are you guys still with me? Are you? Let me tell you why I think this is important, okay? This holiness stuff. I flew into San Francisco, drove two hours north to this conference center this weekend. Uh, these guys had called, hey, we want to do a deal. I said, great, we'll do it. They talked to Lou. We got it all squared away. Uh, so we did the conference. And, um, and then when I was finished... Uh, they were going to do some more sessions, but I was going to try to get to San Francisco airport. And there was just a lot of traffic, and I wasn't sure I could make that flight. But as I'm walking out, the guy who was uh, the pastor of the church, uh, he, he said, hey, I know when you're in a hurry. Um, and I could tell there was something up. I couldn't quite tell what it was, but he, he said, hey, have you got time to, to sign a book for me? And I said, yeah. Yeah, he said, my car's down here and the books are in the car. I said, well, just, my car was, I said, just hop in with me. And just as we were starting to get in the car, the guy who had put on the conference and called us and invited us and did all the details and kind of the, you know, the, the, the guy, to, the coordinator, he just came, he said, hey, thanks so much, really appreciate it. And the theme of the conference was like finishing strong. And he had on this shirt that finished strong, you know, Hebrews 12, one. He said, hey, that was just what we needed, thanks so much. And I said, I really appreciate it. I said, okay, good, you know. Let's get in the car with the pastor. We start driving down to his car. And I go over and this pastor has tears in his eyes. And I said, everything okay? He said, the guy that you just talked to, 
uh, is in the middle of a very torrid affair and uh, getting ready to leave his wife and leave his kids. I said, I said, no, I said, not that. no, that's the guy that was putting on the whole deal and invited us. That, he goes, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I said, are you sure? He said, I'm sure. We just found out this week. Uh, we were shocked that he even showed up. But the best we can figure is, since he invited you and been in dialogue with Lou and put it all together, he felt kind of an obligation to be here. He's got his finished strong shirt on. He had his Bible. I, I only had a couple of minutes with him. He was telling me about what a great man his father was, Presbyterian pastor, what his dad taught him about the scriptures. He's telling me all this stuff. It was amazing to me. Guy's very successful. Guy does very well financially. Guy's very, uh, very articulate. Um, but somewhere in the last three months, he met this woman, and he stopped uh, pursuing holiness. He stopped pursuing it. And he started pursuing uh, something else. See, guys, there's a flip side to, to, to pursuing holiness. And the flip side to pursuing holiness, catch this, is forsaking sin. So if you're going to pursue holiness, that means you don't pursue sin. You forsake it. William Gurnall said this, to forsake sin is to leave it without any thought reserved of returning to it again. That's how you pursue holiness. Now, I got a couple minutes left by design. I've been watching the clock like a hawk. Because as we close this, I want to show you two other guys that were brothers that also had a glimpse, like Isaiah did, of the holiness of God. Their names were Nadab and Abihu. Some of you, your wives are pregnant. You're thinking of some unique names. <laughs> I wouldn't consider Nadab or Abihu. You say, who were these guys? Well, they were uh, sons of Aaron, Moses' brother. Would you turn real quick to Exodus 24? In Exodus chapter 24, these guys have an experience much like Isaiah had uh, in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 24, verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Then drop down to verse 9. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Now catch this. And they saw the God of Israel. What they saw was the glory of God. They saw the magnificence, the presence of And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Can't even describe what this was like. Yet he did not stretch out his hands against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. He didn't kill them, in other words. He allowed them to get a glimpse of his glory 
He allowed them to get a glimpse of his majesty. They, uh, you, you can't even imagine something like that. Now, who were Nadab and Abihu? Well, their, well, their dad, Aaron, was the priest. They were the apprenticed priest. They were going to take over when Aaron would die, and so they were priests uh, along with him. They were apprentice priests. Listen, not all the people of Israel, you got Moses, you got Aaron, you've got Nadab and Abihu, you got the 70 elders. They saw the glory of God. Life-changing event. Go over to Leviticus. What's Leviticus again? Leviticus talks about the worship of God in the tabernacle. That's what these guys did. They saw the glory of God. They saw the greatness of God. They saw the majesty of God. They saw the holiness of God. Verse 10. Now, Dadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to offer. I'm in Leviticus 10, verse 1. I'm sorry. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans. And see, previously in Leviticus, it talks about how they would do this. It was very, very specific. And once again, it may be boring to you, but it shouldn't have been boring to them because this was the God that they saw. This was the God that they had a glimpse of his glory. That would be, that, you can't even describe such an event. You, you would fall down flat on your face, just as Isaiah did. This is a God that is to be feared. This is a God that is to be honored. This is a God that is to be obeyed. And they placed their incense on the fire in the fire pans, and they offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them, and fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. That's an amazing thing. Now, what's even more amazing is the dialogue between Moses and Aaron. Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke. He reminds Aaron, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I would be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. You know what Aaron knew? God had been just in taking the lives of those boys because they had not honored the one true holy there's an interesting phrase in Psalm 78, verse 32, talking about all that God did for Israel, all the miraculous things that he did, the, the remarkable manna, the provision, the care, the miracles. And then there was a point where he severely disciplined them, and it says in Psalm 78, 32, it says, for all this, they still sinned. They still sinned. You know, when we talk about the holiness of God, uh, you know, sometimes, guys, we struggle with God because we don't understand God. Part of our problem with God and what God does sometimes is that um, we're, missing, um, we're missing the holiness of God. Um, 
we forget that God judges sin. Thomas Watson once said, sin as naturally draws punishment to it as the magnet draws iron. See, what happens is God is often so gracious and so kind and so merciful that we forget that God punishes sin. God disciplines believers who get into sin. Uh, let me offer two thoughts as we close this off. Um, number one, this has, to do with this, this has to do with the holiness of God and how God works. Here's, here's number one. We struggle with the idea of hell because we are weak about the holiness and character of God. Let me say that again. We struggle with the idea of hell because we are weak about the holiness and character of God. When I was on the plane this weekend talking with this young woman, the thing she said to me three or four times was, my brother told my other brother that he was going to go to hell. She was incensed by that. Now, I, I, I sensed a modicum of openness. So I was trying to be wise in my conversation with her. Um, she actually at one point asked me about a book, and I told her about Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And, but you know, people can only absorb certain things at certain times. So I didn't say to her, not only is your brother going to hell, but you're going to hell. And everybody on this plane is going to hell, including me, apart from the work of Jesus Christ, who makes it possible for us to have eternal life with God the Father. I didn't say that to her. It wasn't the time to say it to her. She was incensed that, her, that he would even say so. Her mother was incensed to bring up hell when someone is facing death. What a cruel thing, really. <clears throat> Thomas Watson says this about hell. He says, the torments of hell have no period put on them. Origen, who was an early church father, a commentator, Origen fancied a fiery stream in which the souls of sinful men and even devils were to be purged, and then they would pass into heaven. There are some evangelicals who hold to that today, that hell is not forever, as the Scripture says. But the Scripture asserts, Watson says, that whoever is not purged from sin by the blood of Christ, 1 John 1, 7, is to lie under the torrid zone of God's wrath for all eternity. Revelation 14, 11 says, the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. The word ever Watson says, burns hotter than the fire. At death, all our worldly sorrows die, but the torments of hell are as long-lived as eternity. Now catch this. Revelation 9, 6 says, they shall seek death and shall not find it. Then Watson says, always dying, but never dead. Boy, that's a horrible thing. Always dying, but never dead. He goes on and says, the pains of hell 
are without intermission. If a man is in pain, yet while he is asleep, he does not feel it. But there is no sleep in hell. What, what would the damned give for one hour's sleep? Revelation 4.8 says, They rest not day nor night. That's tough stuff. Um, qu- quite frankly, uh, that is heartbreaking stuff. So why are people there? That brings me to my second point. Second point is this. And see, we struggle. We, we, just, just reading that stuff. Gosh, that's severe. Gosh, that's harsh. How could... How, see, the reason we struggle with the idea of hell is because we are so weak about the holiness and character of God and, and quite frankly, we're so weak on sin and what has been done and what has been violated. Stay with me. Number two. Second point. The sinful heart loves hell more than the holiness of God. Let me say that again. The sinful heart loves hell more than the holiness of of God. Catch this. One more quote from Watson. This guy knew the scriptures and this guy knew God. He writes this. The heart and sin are like two lovers who cannot endure to be parted. Did you catch that? Let's do that again. The heart and sin are like two lovers who cannot endure to be parted. A sinner is the greatest self-denier. For the love of sin, he will deny himself apart in heaven they love sin more than they love heaven Um, some men in a fit of sickness when their consciences are so far awakened as to be brought to a site of hell he's talking about a guy on his deathbed a guy who's really he's got a terminal illness they're brought to a site of hell and they begin to smell the fire and brimstone Oh, what promises they make if only God will spare their lives. But when they recover and are spared, they are worse than ever before. Had you not ever seen that? Oh, Lord, if you just deliver me, if you get me out of this, I'll serve you, I'll follow you. And he delivers them, and then they go out and live like hell. They continue to sin. Then he says this, There is so much atheism and hard-heartedness in men so close an adherence to lust in their souls that they will go on in sin inflexibly till God, by a miraculous power, stops their course as he did with Paul when he was going with letters on the way to Damascus. The obstinance of men, though they are sometimes convinced that they are in a bad way, yet their corruptions are stronger than their convictions. If a wicked man, you got to hear this. Don't lose me here. If a wicked man could be fetched out of hell and brought back into a capacity of mercy, yet he would in a second life follow his lust and sins himself into hell again. And that's true. That's how unclean we are. Jeremiah said the heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who could know? So what does God do? By his mercy and grace, he breaks into our life. 
And he says, come unto me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Uh, he, he breaks into our lives, and he offers not only to save us from sin, he offers to save us from ourselves. Because if it's up to us, you know what? We will not choose him. If it's up to, see, we, we, love, we love our sin more than we love him. We love sin more than we love a Savior. If he doesn't break into our lives and draw us to himself, we will not come. That's how great a Savior he is. Uh, many of us, vast majority of us in this room, we've come to know Christ. He lives uh, in our hearts. He's given us eternal life. Uh, he rules and reigns in our hearts. We now want to honor him with our lives. We want to pursue holiness. Uh, we want to pursue holiness and we want to kill sin. Um, you know, you may, when you die, you may not leave your kids a lot of money. Uh, when you die, you, you might not be real famous. You might not be... Uh, have a lot of notoriety. You might not have a lot of people at your memorial service. But if you leave your kids and your grandkids the example of a man who was following hard after Christ, uh, you're a world changer. And I'll tell you what else. You're a legend. In a hundred years, they'll still be talking about you. Because you were a man uh, who delighted uh, in the word of God. There's no greater legacy. There's no greater heritage. You pursued holiness. Guys, that's what we're called to do this week. And you know what? We're going to get out there tomorrow. Shoot you. Maybe on your way home. You know? What are we going to do? Let's kill the sin. Let's turn from it. Let's turn to him. Let's, let's pursue him. It's daylight savings time. We got a new lease on life. When we come to him, old things pass away. All things are new. Why don't we stand and let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for your holiness. Thank you for your purity. We are men of unclean lips among an unclean people. But we thank you that we have access into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Christ, even now. We are going into your presence where the high priest could go only once a year. And we do that through Christ. Uh, Father, I pray for this woman that I was on the plane with. Uh, that was uh, almost a two-hour conversation. Uh, she was struck by uh, C.S. Lewis's experience being an atheist and coming to faith. I told her about George Mueller supporting those thousands of orphans and how they'd be out of food and someone would knock on the door and it would be a broken down horse cart with a broken axle full of hot food that was going to go bad unless someone could use it, and with that they would feed the children. Uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, you might continue to draw her, that she would read those books. I pray for her brother, uh, who was uh, with his family in San Francisco 
And that had to be a very difficult experience for him as he attempted to share the gospel. I'm sure he said a lot more than what she reported. We pray for that family. I pray for this uh, man this weekend um, that invited me to do the conference but is considering um, destroying his life. We pray that you will work in his life, that you will draw him. We pray that he will not offer strange fire. But we pray, Lord, that he will pursue holiness, that he will pursue you and pursue the scriptures, and that he will forsake sin and kill it. And we would pray that for ourselves. Now, Lord, we pray for the services here on Sunday. There are going to be a lot of people coming in that don't know you. There are going to be a lot of people coming in just uh, out of respect for family members, and they're getting together for a family dinner. We pray that you might do a great work in the hearts of people that don't know you. We pray that there would be a special anointing on Chuck, uh, even as he studies and prepares and as he delivers your word on Sunday. May uh, there be many resurrections in this building as he teaches about the resurrection. That would be our prayer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.